Or Rebecca Davis with Plan B. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, John. Belofter boss, a question for your guest. My guest is no longer with me, but I have another guest, Rebecca Davis. By taking this battle to court and potentially forcing the venue to host a wedding that infringes on their views of faith, is that not wrong too? Oh, for gracious sake. You're referring to the... Belofter boss. The, the wedding yeah. venue that won't marry same-sex people. I don't understand why we're still having this conversation in our year of... <laughs> The year of our Lord 2020. It is against the Constitution to refuse commercial access on the grounds of sexual orientation. Simple as. I mean, the one respect in which I somewhat, I suppose, agree with your your caller or messenger is that if I had been refused as a gay person to get married at a venue, I certainly would not push to then get married there because the very thought is repugnant. Why, why should they get my money? But the fact remains, it is not... A choice. It is not a matter of conscience or the rest of it. It is a matter of law. And the fact that so many people find it defensible is absurd. And the point is that the whole argument crumbles when you say, okay, is it okay for them to refuse to marry Jews? Because they think that Jews killed Jesus and they're too Christian to do so. Of course nobody would accept that. Why will you accept them not marrying gay people? It makes no sense. There we go. My guest has answered your question. Now on to um, the Zondo Commission and Deputy Chief Justice Zondo um, today um, said, did, did he say I am applying for or I'm still waiting for a response to my application to continue to host hearings until the end of the year? He said that it is to be heard by the High Court, that matter, on February 11th. So it's a High Court decision. Waiting. It is apparently a court decision. Um, okay. But the Attorney General has uh, has informed him there's no, been no objections. Oh, so it okay. is likely that they'll get an extension to run the Zonda Commission until the end of the year. But Zonda said a few interesting things in that press conference today, John. The one which kind of disturbed me because I hadn't been aware of this was that because the commission was set up at the behest of the president who at that time was Jacob Zuma and is now Cyril Ramaphosa it is entirely President Cyril Ramaphosa's prerogative as to whether the report of the Zonda commission is released so technically Ramaphosa could decide not to release the report now we have no evidence that that'll be the case it seems most uncharacteristic of Ramaphosa and Zonda said he believes Ramaphosa will release the report, but he Surely, said yes. it is entirely possible that portions of the report could be redacted for matters of security or the rest. And John, no, just, rubbish. There's not a single matter of security which has been heard or will be heard if the extension is granted that will require a security redaction. I can only imagine if that were the case that surely the courts would be approached by any number yeah. of NGOs in this country. But it is quite a... It's not a great thought, given how much pressure the Zonda Commission is already under to justify its its existence in the public eye. And one of the other issues brought up today was, what about the problem of the Guptas and the former president, Jacob Zuma? What happens if the Guptas don't come and testify, as now seems almost 100% likely, and Zuma manages to avoid testifying again? Doesn't that negate, in a way, the purpose? As somebody memorably said, you can't have Romeo and Juliet without Romeo and Juliet. Those are the Guptas. And Zondo's response was sanguine, I suppose. He said, you know, it's not, it doesn't negate the work. It doesn't mean that we haven't compiled a good picture of what's going on. We don't get the testimony of the Guptas. John, I'm afraid I just, I don't agree. I think it will significantly weaken, if nothing else, the public perceptions of the work of the Zondo Commission if they cannot get these three key witnesses in front of it. And I acknowledge they almost certainly won't. Yeah, um, I, I can... I can understand 
they're not getting the Guptas because getting the Guptas is out of the Commission's hands. It is. Um, if we are to believe Ronald Lamola, and I have no particular reason to discredit him, South Africa is trying quite hard to get the UAE mm. to collaborate with getting the Guptas back via some sort of mutual legal assistance agreement. Um, but Jacob Zuma, I mean, that's going to be, I think, a test of, of the metal, to what extent they are prepared to push things there. And, and for Deputy Chief Justice Zondo to say, I met the man who leads his medical team, and I'm unconvinced that he is medically unfit to mm. testify. Um, uh, we will shorten the testimony to two hours a day and take other testimony in the afternoon so he can relax. Or, I mean, there are ways. There are ways. A point made by Zondo, which is, of course, true, is that there's an assumption that if these witnesses appear, they will give testimony of value, which, again, is almost certainly not true. Yeah. He made the point that the Guptas did submit affidavits at the beginning of the commission, in which blanket denials and no other information. It's highly likely that's exactly what they would mm. do if they were in front of the commission again. Which is why I don't think I'm quite as sanguine as he is, but I'm not as choleric as you are about it. I think that given the scrutiny that the Zonda Commission is under, because really they, they are voices, John, perhaps perhaps not ones that we hear all the time, saying that the commission is biased, that the commission is a witch hunt, etc. It will allow them to paint the commission as one-sided and biased, unfairly, if those people do not testify, even if they do not testify by their own action, inaction. Yeah, but I mean, those people can surely quite easily be dismissed, who would argue that. Those people can be dismissed, but it is both a matter of public perception and, of course, the matter of getting the full record of state capture. If nothing else, I would love to hear the defense... Of the Guptas. You know, I was thinking about in criminal proceedings, it's not uncommon for the accused not to testify. It happens all the time. But they have a team of lawyers presenting their side of the story. Mm. I'd love to hear how the Guptas, how on earth they would manage to scramble out of some of the evidence, particularly from the Gupta leaks emails, being presented. What possibly could they say? I mean, from that perspective, a fascination, if nothing else. I'd love to hear them on the Yeah, I'd love to hear them. But I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure that the... The Commission's report is going to be significantly watered down as a result of the absence of their testimony. We'll see. The Parktown Boys incident. This this story has been playing on my mind a lot. Has a, I think it has a lot of a lot of people. Yeah. Sheer, sheer horror. But leaving aside the actual details of what did or didn't happen there, I was struck, John, by how how um, attached we are as a society, seemingly, to the idea that these kind of team-building orientation icebreaker exercises have to be physical in nature, mm. particularly when it involves boys, from Camp Staldrat to those boys' town kind of reformatory gay conversion camps, which are all about, you know, these kind of brutalizing physical exercises, etc. It seems that we just accept that physical activity is the best way to ensure collaboration, teamwork, and the rest of it. And I wonder, isn't that an idea that we should actively be questioning, particularly in light of this kind of an event? I think. Yeah, and I, I had a conversation earlier this week, Rebecca, with an educational psychologist about this, uh, saying that is, is the idea, I mean, let's, let's assume that an orientation camp involving outdoor activities is properly managed, properly set up, mm. their proper supervision at all times, is the idea, does it have some merit? And she was not entirely convinced. Yes, some, some form of um, some form of getting young boys or young girls who are going to be spending probably a five-year school career together in, in, in the same place and, and doing team-building activities is worthwhile, but they don't have to be physical. No.
Absolutely. I was researching this and I couldn't find anything involving kids per se. But when it comes to corporate team building, there's very little evidence to suggest that they are effective from the perspective of you know, collaboration and communication, except when the exercises are kind of directly relevant to your work and carried out in a similar environment. So the idea that you get, you know, a bunch of librarians to go whitewater rafting and suddenly it transports them to new levels of bonding and intimacy and collaboration is actually not true. It's kind of <laughs> useless for the workplace. So my point is these kids are not going to the military, you know, or to even, they're not even in the rugby team where perhaps you could make an argument it is important for them to be kind of physically bonded in that way. They going to sit in classrooms for five years and hopefully study damn hard and write exams. In what sense is, you know, raft building and walking on barefoot or the rest of it remotely helpful to that? And I think it, it is fostered by this cultural belief that, you know, physical virtue is linked to moral virtue. So the stronger and more physical you are, the better a person you are, which we know is absolute rubbish given the number of sports people who are just terrible, terrible humans in this country and elsewhere. And I think it's just an archaic notion that we should really try and do away. What's wrong with them sitting in a circle playing get-to-know-each-other games, John? <laughs> or that thing with the egg. <laughs> what, you, what thing with the egg? <laughs> There's something with an egg where you boil an egg uh, or try and drop it. Perhaps you and or, Nicola and George and I can go off and do the thing with the egg and see what it let's, does. Let's George looks very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> what issue is dividing the internet this week? So the novelist Alex Christoffi tweeted, Yesterday my colleague called me a book murderer because I cut long books in half to make them more portable. Does anyone else do this? Is it just me? With a picture to prove it of Dostoevsky, David Foster Wallace's big tomes literally sawn in two to allow him to take, you know, just one half if he's on a commute or a trip and leave the other half at home. <laughs> as you can imagine, many people responded as if he had admitted to being a something serial killer. Could, yeah, something more serious than getting him. What, 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 what are your, your views on this important debate? Well, I, I kind of... I, I'm fence-sitting here. There is something about... Because books have been desecrated, destroyed, cut up, mm -hmm. burned for reasons of what is in the book and because what is in the book is threatening to a particular power system at a particular time in history, because of that, it revolts me. But if the reason is as practically sensible as it's easier to carry 350 pages with me than 700, then I think one must be a little more tolerant, no? No, I think you're absolutely right. But I oh, share good. the same distaste as long as we admit that it is basically nonsensical. I, I think it's got something to do with the fact that the first books were literally sacred texts. So to defile them was blasphemous, sacrilegious. And we have carried some of that over, I think. Well, those of us who love books, at least. You know, this kind of reverence for the object of a book, which is really, I think, not altogether... Justify. I mean, as somebody who reads an astonishing amount of really trashy literature, I can tell you there is no particular elevating um, effects of reading everything. You know, it's only certain books that transport you into, you know, revelations of human nature. The rest is, is, is quite a lot of rubbish, to be honest. So from that perspective, reading an... Well, the only reason to protect the integrity of those kinds of books is that you get 35 rand instead of 15 rand for them when you take them to the second-hand bookstore. Store. Are you an avid reseller of, of books, John? No, 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 I'm not. I donate a lot of books to libraries, but I'm, I'm thinking in... No, that's yeah. a, that, that is a very good point. I just think that it is, it is, 
you know, this this idea that book book reading is intrinsically so virtuous, again, I suppose, is uh, not necessarily true. I think there are TV programs, for instance, at the moment, which have more narrative complexity, more depth, more interesting insights into human nature than a lot of books. And perhaps, For example? For example? Oh, my goodness. The Sopranos, John. The Sopranos. The Sopranos. I could, I could go on. Real Housewives of Johannesburg. I mean, that will tell you more about <laughs> South African society than reading any number of news articles every day. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca Davis.